This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 23rd, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm updates us on the week's most interesting online news stories. And then we hear from Ritu Chatterjee about a project that helps blind children recover their vision while gaining insight into the brain. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. First up, we have an article about the origins of life on Earth. How and when did it originate? Science is still working out the details, and a new study is pushing the date back a full 300 million years earlier than a previous estimate of 3.8 billion years. This hinges on a study of a crystal called zircon. What makes zircon so special that it can uncover the origins of life, Dave? Well, Suzanne, zircons grow in magma, and they are incredibly hardy. They're very thin. They actually barely span the width of a human hair, but they're nearly indestructible. And that's important because if you can think about the early history of Earth, our planet was very violent, lots of volcanic eruptions, lots of... Um, uh, lots of other sort of very tumultuous things happening. And so much was happening, actually, that e the oldest rocks on Earth are only about 4 billion years old because there's been so much um, upheaval. But zircons can be up to 4.4 billion years old, so older than rocks in some cases. Uh, and that's because they're so hardy. And so when scientists are looking for clues to early life on Earth, they've turned to these zircons. Okay, so where did they find these samples, and what did they find inside the zircon? Well, they looked in a place called Jack Hills, which is in Western Australia. And this is sort of in a treasure trove of zircons, and it's yielded a lot of samples from the so-called Hadean period. And this is a very early chapter in Earth's history. And what the researchers found were these graphite flecks, and these are carbon mineral that are trapped in zircons, had a very low ratio of heavy to light carbon atoms. And this is consistent with the signature for organic matter. So what did the scientists conclude about it? Well, this particular sample they looked at was 4.1 billion years old, which as you stated, Suzanne, is 300 million years older 
than the limit we thought we had before for life on Earth, which is about 3.8 billion years ago. So if this really is a signature of organic matter, a clue to life, it would indicate that life may have arisen hundreds of millions of years on our planet before we thought. Now that actually is consistent with some recent thinking that our planet during this time wasn't nearly as sort of violent a place as scientists once thought. In fact, there was even some thinking there was liquid water around this time, which would be necessary for the type of life that scientists are looking for. Interesting. But this isn't proof that these samples contained organic matter, is it? No. In fact, and there's been some controversy with similar samples in the past that there's been human contamination. Also, it's unclear if there is organic matter in these samples, if it actually formed at the time the zircon actually formed, or if perhaps it was somehow deposited later in history, which would make these samples younger than scientists thought. So this certainly isn't a smoking gun, but it's some intriguing evidence that perhaps life on Earth may have started a lot earlier than we thought. Well, it's certainly an interesting find. Now, from the origin of life on Earth to the origin of dogs. You're a bit of an expert on how dogs evolve from wolves to become our closest animal companions, Dave. But there still remain mysteries about where dog domestication actually happened. Was it China? Was it the Middle East? Or was it Europe? Now it seems geneticists are chiming in with new data that doesn't quite match up with earlier hypotheses. What's their case, Dave? Well, that's right, Suzanne. You know, dog domestication is one of the big mysteries of evolutionary biology. We, we know dogs came from gray wolves. We just don't know when or where that happened. And what the researchers did in this new study was they tried to get a very broad sample of dogs from around the world, some things that had complicated previous attempts to sort of trace back the history of dogs using modern dogs is this idea that, you know, dogs have maybe been around for somewhere maybe between 15, 30,000 years, maybe even longer than that. But especially in recent dog history, we've had a lot of interbreeding. Uh, we've had a lot of creation of breeds and all that stuff can kind of muddle the picture of exactly where dogs came from. So for this new study, researchers really looked for dogs that are really isolated from a lot of the other dogs in the world. They looked at village dogs. These are animals that don't really belong to anyone. They hang around people, but most importantly, they don't have a whole lot of interaction with other dogs from neighboring regions. So they're pretty genetically isolated. And the researchers looked at these village dogs from about 38 countries. Okay, so how did this lead scientists to Nepal or Mongolia? Well, what the researchers found is, first of all, a lot of these village dogs, despite their isolation, actually did have a lot of history of interbreeding with European canines, which can kind of complicate the picture. So they really focused on the dogs that really didn't seem to have a whole lot of contact with other dogs. And when they looked at those and looked at the DNA of these dogs, what they found was that the DNA seemed to indicate that these dogs had an ancestor in Central Asia, perhaps uh, Mongolia, Nepal, places like that. And why that's interesting is it really contradicts the current thinking about where dogs came from. There's, there's kind of a debate between whether dogs arose potentially in Europe or Southeast Asia. And so this would peg dogs as actually coming from neither of those places, but from a, a different spot on the globe. Does this settle the question of where dogs originated, Dave? No, it seems like every year there's a study that's telling us where dogs came from, and every year research takes us to a different place. What some experts say is that there's really just no way to use modern dogs to figure out where ancient dogs came from, because no matter how isolated modern dogs are, there's so many thousands of years of potential inbreeding with other dogs, potentially even wolves, that can really complicate the picture. And so what we really need to do 
is look at ancient dog bones, dog bones that are potentially 10,000, 15,000 years old, that are maybe much closer to the time of domestication to really get a clear picture. And that kind of work is currently underway, but we don't have an answer from it yet. Right, getting the ancient DNA from those bones. In our final story, science hasn't always had the tools to answer questions that are thrown at it, which seems to be the case with curious structures in the brain called perineuronal nets, which surround neurons. They were first discovered in 1898, but no one really took a closer look until recently. But now UC San Diego scientists think they may play a role in long-term memory. What's special about these structures, Dave? Well, these structures surround many neurons. They kind of form these web-like lattices, which is why they're called perineuronal nets. They are scaffolds of linked proteins and sugars. They almost resemble cartilage. And, and like you said, Suzanne, nobody really knows what they do, although there's been some speculation that they play a role in learning and memory. And one of the big questions in the brain is how we form long-term memories. We know that our neurons form memories, but the problem is, is that there's so much protein turnover in neurons, it's how do you remember something, you know, years or even decades later if there's so much turnover in the, you know, the cells in your brain that are supposed to be encoding memories. And these perineuronal nets may be the answer just because they seem to be a lot more of a stable structure, which means that they may be able to stick around a lot longer, not have the kind of turnover we see uh, in neurons themselves. Okay, so how did the scientists go about studying the function of these structures? Well, they really just took a much closer look at these structures, which nobody had really done. And they found some interesting things. First of all, they found that the proteins that are contained in these uh, perineuronal nets are not constantly recycled like the proteins in neurons are, but they can survive for at least 180 days, potentially longer, especially when you're talking about like an animal like a rodent, uh, you're getting to be maybe the equivalent of many years in people. So that could potentially explain long-term memories. They also found that these structures are pervasive throughout the brain, and that when they treated them with a chemical that stimulates uh, neurons to form new connections with other cells, the tight-knit lattices of these perineuronal nets developed holes as if they were uh, making room for new connection. One final piece of the puzzle, the group found that when they created knockout mice that were missing an enzyme that normally degrades these perineuronal nets, the animals failed to associate a shock with a beep, suggesting that they were having some problems with memory formation. So all this together sort of builds on this picture that these perineuronal nets really do seem to play a role in memory and more specifically in long-term memory. Interesting. So have they looked at humans at all? I mean, are there implications in terms of people suffering from neurological conditions? Yeah, there have been some intriguing links between these perineuronal nets and conditions like schizophrenia and Costello syndrome, which is a form of intellectual disability. There's also been some evidence that manipulating these nets can help erase bad memories. Now, before we start thinking about using that as a tool for humans, the tools that the scientists used in the study were very blunt. They're not very specific. And obviously, we don't want to be treating people with chemicals or drugs that could potentially erase all of their long-term memories. So some intriguing new science, but still got a way to go to figure out you know, if and how this can be applied to people. Right. But it's interesting to see what you can learn by studying overlooked phenomena, huh? What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story, speaking of brain disorders, we've got a story about some new insights into what may be causing Alzheimer's disease. Also a story about how the size of testes in howler monkeys 
may determine how deep their calls are, and the uh, association is actually the opposite of what many scientists suspected. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about sexual harassment in the field of astronomy, also a story about people that genetically engineer their own living organisms, and if they do that, what agencies should be responsible for regulating it. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. For hundreds of thousands of children in India, blindness is a reality, even if their condition is treatable. Enter neuroscientist Pawan Sinha, who began an organization called Project Prakash to help reverse blindness for some of those children. What he and other scientists have discovered about the brain's capacity for vision from these patients is upending previous assumptions about critical periods for visual development. I spoke with science contributing correspondent Ritu Chatterjee about the project from Calcutta. I'm Suzanne Bard. Ritu, how did Project Prakash get its start and what's its mission? So Project Prakash, it was started by neuroscientist Pawan Sinha, who's at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And there's a personal story behind it. His mother always had this bowl where she used to keep coins to give arms to the poor that you see um, in many Indian cities. And once she passed away, his father had held on to the bowl. And this one winter evening while visiting New Delhi, he'd grabbed some coins from that bowl. And when he went out in a cab, stopped at a light, some kids came up to him and asked for um, money and he gave it to them. And he realized that all the children had dense cataracts in their eyes and they were blind and he was really moved by it and surprised because you know when we talk about cataracts we usually think of old people getting cataracts right um and in this case uh so he was surprised by it he went back and started researching and realized that a large number of children are born with cataracts there's a big cause of blindness and the thing is that you can actually do something about it in developed countries this is fixed within the first few months of an infant's life with a simple cataract surgery and that's when Pawan Sinha decided that he would start Project Prakash to help these children. And the mission essentially is to help poor children from rural areas who don't have access to health care uh, and who are born blind to help them through cataract surgeries and also help other kids who have preventable causes of blindness with, say, other kinds of treatments that would help them. So you said that a large number of children are born with cataracts. Is it known why this is? And what's the prevalence of blindness overall in children? And why is it thought that's so high? Suzanne, just to give you a sense of the extent of childhood blindness in India now, there aren't very good estimates, not many studies at the national level, but still estimates range from anywhere between 360,000 to 1.2 million children. Now, India doesn't necessarily have a higher number of children being born with cataracts, which is a congenital condition. But the problem in India is, like in many other developing countries, that 70 percent of the population lives in rural areas. They're poor, people are uneducated, and there's very limited access to healthcare in general, including eye care. So 
congenital cataracts, for example, a problem that gets fixed in developed countries and even in cities among the upper middle class here in India, when a child is born, their eyesight is tested right away. And if they are born with cataracts, that's fixed with a simple surgery in the first six months of their life. But here in India, because of poverty, lack of education, lack of access to health care, you have hundreds of thousands of children who don't have access to surgery. And Cataracts are only one cause of blindness for children and adults. You have a whole range of other eye problems that also lead to blindness. And what kind of future does a child that's blind have to look forward to in India? Well, it's pretty grim. Again, we're talking primarily about a population that's very, very poor. Their parents are uneducated and unaware about what facilities are out there. And so like these kids that Pavan Sinha met on that winter afternoon more than a decade ago, you know, they might end up on the streets very poor and begging. Oftentimes for girls who are blind, their future is even more grim because then they're more at risk of, say, violence, sexual violence even. And there's a taboo around blindness as well, which means that your prospects aren't really very good. There are schools for the blind. There are nonprofits that take care of blind children. But then I think the problem is that there are far too few of them. So what does Project Prakash do to help these kids? So the main thing that Project Prakash does is provide treatment, both surgical care for kids who have congenital cataracts and non-surgical care for kids who have, say, other forms of treatable blindness. So every year, about twice or maybe three times a year, they set up these screening camps in rural areas and they test children to see what kinds of eye problems they have and is it still treatable? Can they be helped by non-surgical care like glasses? So access to eyeglasses is even a huge problem in India or other optical aids. Sometimes they have eye infections that can be fixed with a bit of ointment. So, so far, they have treated a little more than 1,400 children with non-surgical care, and a little less than 500 kids have received cataract surgery from Project Prakash. And so the the outcome of this is that about 2,000 kids who were either completely blind or very close to blind are now leading a sighted life. They've spent their childhood being completely dependent on their parents, their families, perhaps ridiculed by the community, made fun of. And today they are leading independent lives and there is some hope, there is some future for them. Well, that sounds wonderful. And let's talk now about where science comes into all of this. Tell me about this so-called critical period for developing vision and what was it originally based on? Right. So the critical period for vision development is a very fundamental idea that says that, you know, there is a critical window shortly after a child is born where the brain essentially learns to make sense of all the visual stimuli that the eyes are sending on to the brain. And there was a series of groundbreaking studies done in the 70s and 80s by David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel. And this work was primarily done in cats and monkeys that show that if you deprive 
the brain of signals from the eyes in the early days soon after a cat or a monkey is born, then your brain is sort of the visual cortex is permanently damaged so that, you know, beyond that initial critical period when the brain starts to learn to make sense of visual signals from the eyes, if you deprive the brain of those signals, vision is permanently damaged. Now, there have been no studies on humans of this kind for obvious ethical reasons, but that work was interpreted to mean that obviously there must be a critical period for humans as well, and learning was a key key part of vision. And neuroscientists and ophthalmologists had assumed that this critical window for humans closes between, say, somewhere around six to eight years. And the reason that there's such a wide estimate for that window is because we don't really know exactly when that window closes. So, you know, when Project Prakash started, Pawan Sinha, besides helping these kids gain sight, gain vision, he also was hoping they could help him answer a question that had intrigued him for a long time, which is how does the brain learn to see? And in the past, doctors and ophthalmologists had been turning away kids who were older than eight because it was assumed, well, it doesn't matter if you fix the eyes, the brain is not going to be able to learn to interpret those signals and make sense of visual stimuli, make sense of what the eyes are seeing. But the main thing that Project Prakash has done is by operating on doing these cataract surgeries on kids who are older than eight and even kids in their late teens and some young adults have shown that, well, no, you know, it's not that critical window isn't important, but what they've shown is even later on in life, the adult brain maintains some plasticity and ability to learn so that over time, these kids who've had cataract surgeries are able to to see and function independently. So what does this tell us about what resources the brain has for vision to begin with when we're born? Right. And are the blind able to retain what we are born with, some innate capacity for the brain to see the world, to make sense of visual signals? And there was a very interesting paper that Project Prakash team published earlier this year. And what it shows is when we are born, the brain seems to have some innate kind of pre-wiring, so to speak, that helps us make sense of at least some basic elements of what the eyes are seeing. And uh, this, this, this study was done on what we call visual illusions, which are essentially like you and I are looking at an image and we misinterpret, our brains tend to misinterpret the image, you know, so there's a difference between reality and our perception of our eyes and our visual cortex. And there are two camps in terms of explaining visual illusions. Some scientists think that it's a product of visual experience. So, you know, we're used to looking at something in a certain way and there are calculations that the brain makes with time and with more experience that leads us to sort of misinterpret or see something slightly differently. It's a miscalculation by the brain. There's another camp which says that, well, we're born with an innate ability to misinterpret certain images 
because it's something about the innate wiring in our brains that tends to produce these errors. Now, it wasn't possible to really test one hypothesis against the other because you can't really deprive a baby of visual signal and then wait for it to grow up and see whether they're susceptible to visual illusions or not. And you can't really have a baby talk about what it's seeing or not. But Project Prakash gave a beautiful opportunity for the team scientists to test this And what they did was, between the years 2010 and 2011, they picked nine children who they were sure were congenitally blind when they were born. So they had had no visual experience. And the day after surgery, when their bandages are removed, they showed them these two illusions. One is a Ponzo illusion. The other is called Mullalire illusions. These are geometric illusions. And in the Ponzo illusion, you see a bunch of parallel lines leading to kind of what looks like the horizon, the end of the image. Think of them as train tracks, right? Train tracks running to the horizon. And there are two identically sized parallel lines that cut across these train tracks. And despite the fact these two lines are exactly the same, the one that's closer to the horizon looks longer to us. And so if visual illusions were a product of learning, Project Prakash children wouldn't be susceptible to it, right? But, you know, lo and behold, what do they find? That Project Prakash kids, the day after surgery, when their vision is still very naive, when they still can't really make sense of what they're seeing, they find the line closer to the horizon bigger, just like, you know, normally sighted people would, which says that this is innate and not a product of learning. And there's some evidence from other scientists' work as well, which says that at least some part of the visual cortex comes sort of pre-wired to make certain basic, simple calculations about the world. Clearly, the blind are able to maintain that kind of pre-wiring despite years of blindness. And that could perhaps play at least some role in helping these kids gain vision after surgery. So what does Project Prakash suggest about neuroplasticity? Right, neuroplasticity. And that's where Project Prakash is making a huge contribution with all the studies that they're doing with the kids who've had cataract surgery. But what Project Prakash is showing that no, you know, the adult brain, the older brain has certain amount of neuroplasticity. So when you first remove the bandages the day after surgery for Prakash kids, their world goes from being dark to bright, right? They see a lot of light and they see a lot of things, but they don't know what they are. They're looking at a table and a window. They don't know that the table is a 3D thing that's standing on the ground. They don't know where the table ends and the ground begins. They don't know what the window is. They don't necessarily know that the scene outside the window is outside. So they're seeing all these things, but they can't make any sense of it. But within a year and a half, they start to make sense of the world, which means that it takes the brain time, perhaps a little longer than it would take a newborn. But the brain is figuring out through experience a way to interpret the signals that it's suddenly now receiving from the eyes that have been blind for several years. And the other thing that Project Prakash is showing is that it's not that the idea of critical period 
is wrong. What Hubel and Wiesel showed still holds ground, but what Project Prakash is showing is that there is a different critical period for different visual functions. So, for example, take two very basic visual functions, acuity, which is the sharpness of vision, what the eye doctor tests when they put those lenses on you and sees how small the letters on the wall that you can read. And the other is something called contrast sensitivity. It's the eye's ability to detect contrasts and different sizes when you show them patterns. And so normally sighted individuals can detect patterns in a range of sizes when the contrast is above a certain threshold. Now, blind people, obviously, they can't see. There is no way to measure contrast sensitivity. They have none. But Project Prakash kids, both in terms of acuity and contrast sensitivity, soon after surgery, once the eyes and the brain start to process the visual signals, They show increase in both these functions, but they never reach normal levels, which means that that critical window for these two basic visual functions must close earlier than eight years, which is the youngest kid that Project Prakash has operated on. On the other hand, if you take more complex visual functions, like say the ability to connect what one is seeing with what one is touching with eyes closed. So, you know, be able to tell a cube if you close your eyes and touch a cube and then, you know, I take the cube away and put it at a distance from you and take off the blindfold, you and I will be able to tell that that's a cube or it's a sphere or whatever, a box. But Project Prakash kids, soon after surgery, they are not able to do this. But in several weeks, with learning, with experience, they are able to make sense of that. They start using clues from motion. You know, movement gives them clues that the brain is then able to incorporate to make sense of, well, you know, that's a table, that's a person, that's a tree. And, you know, that's kind of how the brain learns to make sense of the world. So it's really interesting how basic visual functions seem to have a critical window that closes earlier. More complex visual functions seem to have a window that either closes later or it doesn't close even later. And Project Prakash kids after surgery are able to learn these things. Where does this go from here? I mean, sounds like it kind of treads the line between charity work and science, unlike most projects. That's right. This does tread the line between humanitarian work and science, which is, I think, what is so powerful about this story. And going forward, there are endless questions still to ask and sort of figure out about how the brain learns to see. One of the things that Project Prakash is trying to do is figure out, well, as these kids learn to recognize different things, learn complex visual functions, how is that affecting their visual cortex? And they're sort of following the different changes going on in the visual cortex as these kids learn to see over time after surgery. And the other long-term thing for them is that they fix the vision of these kids. They take these kids from being blind and bring them into light. But oftentimes, even though their lives are so much better, so, so much better than they were before, it's hard for them to become completely sighted, right? Because there is this time when their brains are still learning, etc. So one of the things Project Prakash is doing is working on opening a residential school in the same campus with Dr. Shroff's charitable eye hospital where the surgeries happen and all the studies happen so that kids after surgery, they can stay at that facility 
and they can do rehab and training to further improve their visual functions and do it faster. So the idea is that, you know, things like contrast sensitivity, which I first mentioned, there is research showing that you can use various kinds of training using video games, other sort of training programs that can push the limit to which contrast sensitivity improves, even if the window closes earlier. You can use training to improve, say, the coordination between their own movement and with what they're seeing, so visual motor coordination. And that's the direction that Project Prakash is taking. And I think what's going to happen once this gets off the ground is that it is going to be much much easier for these kids to transition to life among the sighted. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Ritu. Thank you, Suzanne. My pleasure. Ritu Chatterjee reports on Project Prakash, an organization bridging the worlds of science and humanitarian work to help blind children see. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.